Last week, we started a series on sanctification called uh, Growing Up. It's a series where we talked about how we can change and grow into Christ's character and become more like him. That while, yes, you and I, we are saved by faith and faith alone, we are saved when we believe in what Jesus has done for us, the story doesn't just end there. While we're justified by faith, we are called to live a life of holiness afterwards. This is what Romans says. But now you are free from the power of sin and have become slaves of God. Now you do those things that lead to holiness and result in eternal life. Meaning that after we believe in God, after we're freed from sin, we're called to a higher purpose, to a higher standard, and our belief in God should change us. And the question I asked last week to start the message was, how much do you feel like you've been changed by God in the last year? Kind of in the lieu of, we do a lot of things with personal growth, personal development, self-help, self-help books, and a lot of us make New Year's resolutions about how we should change and how we should grow. But the question is, how much has God changed us in the past year? Because to be a true follower of Jesus is to accept that you and I are not perfect. The core message of the gospel is that you and I were not perfect and we couldn't save ourselves So we needed help from someone who was perfect, someone who was perfect and someone who had no flaws, but despite being perfect, despite having no flaws, and despite us having the flaws that we did, this perfect being not only saved us, but loved us more than we could ever imagine in the state that we were already in. And that's the grace that Pastor Chris talked about earlier in in this worship, and that's the grace and the metric and the motive that transforms us to who we are today. And the person that saved us, he loves us too much to leave us how he found us, but he wants us to grow and to become more like him, to have our minds renewed, to be transformed, to become more like Jesus. And that's all good, but the question for this week and the natural part two for this series is, okay, I understand. And maybe some of you were here last week and you're like, you don't need to tell me that I'm imperfect. I know. I have these struggles. I have these sins. This is not new news to me. The question then is, then how does one become Sanctified. How do we go on that, pro- on that process of becoming sanctified, of becoming more like Jesus? Because it's hard to measure growth in certain things. Certain things are very straightforward. Your height, um, like your skill in sports, money, those have straightforward metrics to measure growth. But something like becoming more like Jesus, it's, it's harder to measure. How do you know if you've been growing or if you are growing to become more like Jesus? Is it just how happy you are, your smiles per minute, your hugs per day? Like, how can you measure if you truly are becoming more like Jesus? And that's the question we're looking to answer for today. But before we go into the word, I invite you to join me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I want to thank you for this time and this time of worship as we gather here today, Father. My prayer as we begin this message, as we go into your word and read scripture, is simply that you give us the posture of vessels, Father. Empty us of anything that is not of you, Lord, and fill us with your spirit, Lord. May I become nothing more than a vessel for your word and your message, and may anyone that's listening to this become empty of ourselves, that we may be filled with your spirit, Father. You know who this message is for, Father. May these words not be of mine, but of yours, and may they transform us here at Rock Fellowship today. May your will be done at Rock as it is in heaven. I praise in your son Jesus' name. Amen. I think the prime example To pick an uh, example of scripture of what it really looks like to become more like Jesus. What was Jesus really like? What was Jesus' relationship with his father really like can be found in a short prayer that Jesus himself prays in the book of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 26, we see Jesus kind of at the coming up to the climax of his life. And this is sort of the calm before the storm for Jesus. 
To set the stage for Matthew 26, um, the latter half is he's just finished the Last Supper with his disciples, and they've broken bread and drank together. He's washed their feet, and afterwards, he says, let's go to the garden, to the Mount of Olives, and I want to pray tonight. And he goes up, and he actually leaves the majority of his disciples near the entrance of the garden, and then he takes three of like, his favorite disciples, Peter, James, and John, a little bit further into the garden, and he asks them, pray for me and pray for yourselves. And he leaves the three there, and he goes a little bit further in, not so far that they can't see him, and then he sits down, he kneels down on the floor, and he prays. And this is what Jesus says to the three disciples. As He takes like his favorite three in. He says, this is what he tells them he's feeling right now. He says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. There's this moment here where Jesus becomes vulnerable with his disciples, where he knows what's happening, and he's really seeking some sort of comfort and saying, I am going through it right now. I need you guys to be here with me. I'm going to go over there, not so far where you can't see me, but stay here and pray for me. I need you guys during this time right now. And Ellen White's commentary adds a little bit more details. This is what she says. He went a little distance from them, not so far that they could not see, both see and hear him, and fell prostrate upon the ground, and he felt that by sin he was being separated from his father. The gulf was so broad, so black, so deep that his spirit shuddered before it. This agony he must not exert his divine power to escape. As a man, he must suffer the consequences of man's sin. As man, he must endure the wrath of God against transgression. So Jesus is here in this moment, and he's experiencing kind of these new emotions. Like He's never felt this separation from the Father, and he's starting to take on the responsibility and the consequences of what it's really like to take on the sins of the world. And in the midst of this immense pain, and discomfort, and fear, and confusion, what makes this so much more difficult for Jesus is he knows he can make this stop whenever he wants. He's got a get-out-of-jail-free card, but he can't really use it. He could, but he can't. And that tension is what drives and adds to the, the intensity of this passage. And as he's experiencing this, this is a temptation that Ellen White says that Jesus was facing with. And what was to be gained by this sacrifice? So in other words, he's looking forward to what he's about to do. And the question that is in the back of his mind is what was to be gained from what he's about to go through? How hopeless appear the guilt and ingratitude of men. In his hardest features, Satan pressed the situation upon the Redeemer. The people who claim to be above all others in temporal and spiritual advantages have rejected you. Meaning... That as Jesus is sitting here grappling with all of these things and he's dealing with these tensions, these new emotions, this discomfort and this fear as he's looking ahead into this void, he's realizing and he's kind of in the back of his mind thinking, what, is this really all worth it in the end? Right? All this pain, all this suffering, he looks around because as he says this, as he's dealing with all this, he says this short prayer. And he says this three times during his time. And the prayer is, my father, if it is possible... May this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, as you will. He prays his prayer. We'll come back to that. But after he prays that, because he's so distraught, is as he gets up and he walks back to his disciples. Because in this moment, he needs them for comfort. And as he goes back, he sees them doing what I think is probably the worst possible thing they could be doing in this moment. And he sees his closest earthly companions asleep. And obviously, I am not Jesus. But if I was Jesus, 
And I came back and I'm like sweating blood and I'm so stressed and I'm like wrestling with this. Is this even worth it? Like what's going on? Like how can I get through this? God help me. And I go back and I see my closest friends, my companions asleep. I don't know. I think I would have been like, all right, let's call it. It is what it is. Clearly they don't care. And I think that the, the downside of what Jesus experienced when he saw his disciples sleeping was I feel like in that moment, it became really real for Jesus that this thing he's going through he's going to have to go through alone. That these disciples, they don't really understand. They don't really, it's not that they don't care. Maybe yes, maybe no, but they don't really understand what Jesus is going through. And on top of that, the person he's leaned on all these years in ministry, throughout his entire existence, the father is now being separated from him. And in this moment, grappling with all of these tensions and these emotions and these fears, what Jesus realizes in the truest sense is that he's going to have to go through this ordeal alone. Which brings us to the significance of the prayer that he prays. It's a short prayer. Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And actually, later on in the passage, it changes a little bit. In the book of Matthew, if you go two verses down, it says, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. There's something that happens in the Garden of Gethsemane in here, Jesus and his prayer with God, that really sums up Jesus' relationship with his Father in one word. And really the example that Jesus leads for us, leaves for us to follow as you grow in this path of becoming more like Jesus. And in a word, it's submission. In this prayer, in this very short prayer, Jesus agrees to submit to God's plan. In the beginning of his prayer, he acknowledges, God, here's what I would like. Here's really what I'm leaning towards. I feel like we should do anything else. Anything but this is what this cup, this thing that I see coming down the road, if we could do anything but that, that would be great. That's my idea. That's my plan. But not as I will, but as you will. And having said that, having acknowledged that this is not necessarily what he wanted to do, and what he wanted was not necessarily in line with God's plan for him, Jesus submits to the Father's plan. This word submission and submit is, is a word that, I don't know, we don't use very often aside from maybe students turning in assignments. But as I was thinking about this word, the best way to convey this sense, um, I realized I have a very personal relationship with the word submission in that I actually learned the true meaning of this word in church when I was, I would say the equivalent of maybe a primary or a junior's kid in Rock Kids. Um, back in those days, youth ministry was very, was a little bit different. And the way youth ministry ran was not so much we have today. And I realized the main thing that we did as like the group of boys in the high school and like the older um, rock kids group, what we did most days after potluck was one of two things, tackle football or wrestling without fail. That's what we did pretty much every single week where we finished public hung out and the boys would get in like a Sabbath school room. We'd go outside to the park and if there was no park and we had to play on the asphalt, then it was two-hand touch, but it was very rough and you still fell a little bit. And we've, I've shared a little bit about my, about my upbringing in church. And one of the kind of rough parts for me was that I was kind of at this weird age gap with a lot of people. And so I was the youngest boy to hang out with this older girl. And I was the one that was like, hey, can I hang out? Can I go with you guys? And I'm like, okay, I guess. And at least, I was at least three years younger than the next person. And at most, I think the oldest person, I was maybe five or six years younger than them. And if you know anything about kids and human anatomy and growing up, 
there is like a world of a difference in physique between a fourth grader and a freshman in high school. It's huge. It's like, I don't know, I'm no, I'm no doctor, but I feel like it's the gap between me and LeBron James is smaller than the gap between a fourth grader and a freshman or a sophomore in high school. But I was like, I want to fit in. I want to, like, hey, it looks super fun. Can I play with you guys? And one of the things that we do, we play football, and then we'd also play, we'd just pick a Sabbath school room, and all the boys would get in there, and the older guy would just create a little wrestling tournament, and like, go, you and you, in the middle, and just start wrestling each other. And he's like, you know, it was, I don't know if fun is the right word, but it was a way to pass the time, and we grew and we became stronger for it, okay? Youth ministry was a lot more holistic back in those days. We taught different aspects of life. And one of the things that we would do, obviously, is, you know, when an older guy throws you guys in and you guys are wrestling, you know, figure it out. And he would, like, you know, try to be helpful, throwing tips, do this, don't, don't let him get your back. He would do stuff. And I actually learned, you know, a few things here and there. And one of the things that inevitably happens, and the way we would wrestle is, um, it wasn't just, like, just getting your back on the floor. I think they call it, like, submission wrestling. Basically, you wrestled until, and the way you determine who won or lost is until one person says, I'm in too much pain, please stop. And you would do it by tapping. You would tap on the ground, tap on them, tap on your chest, something. And the tap would signify that you had lost, right? And the other person had won, and, and the round was more or less over. And I, I tapped a lot. Very, every, actually, every time, that's pretty much how it ended for me. Sometimes I would tap immediately just to save myself. But a lot of times it would end up happening just because I was younger and I also wasn't very good at this. And I was just there to hang out. Is that I would find myself in these situations, and I don't know if you've ever had someone put your arm in an arm bar before, but it's a, very, it's a very strange situation to be in. And I feel like the meaning of the word submission for me was learned not when I tapped out, because I would tap out and signify like, I'm done, I've lost, you win, it's over for me. But the true essence of that word was when I tapped out and the other guy didn't stop. Really, because that would happen like, oh, I'm done, I'm done, tap, 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 tap. And he'd be like, okay. And then he was like, well, let me try something. Don't move. I'm like, no, it, I'm in a lot of pain, please. And he's like, no, 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 real quick, let me just try something. And just contort my arm in different places. And in that moment, like when you feel, you feel this sense of I am not in control of my life anymore. In a very small sense, there, it's a very vulnerable place to be when someone is like choking you from behind and you're trying to tuck your chin and to prevent them from choking you. And you say, stop, 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 because I, I can't do anything anymore. I'm done. And the other person says, no. I'm not done. It is a very, very strange situation to be in. And that state of realizing that I am not in control of this situation, that I have submitted, and because I have submitted, technically, I am at the mercy of this person. This person can now do whatever they want with me because I've given up. They're in control. It's a very humbling and powerless feeling that is very, very unpleasant. But at its core... That's what it means to submit. To submit means to lose. That you lose and allow the other person to win. And the measure in which we are willing to lose to God, to submit to God across all areas of our lives, is kind of an indication of our sanctification, where we give up our life to live God's life. We lose ourselves, in a sense, as the modern poet would say. We lose ourselves not to the music or to the moment, but to God, where even your identity who you are becomes changed by who God says you are. We talked about it last week, um, but the identity of these two apostles, John and Paul, change after they've met Jesus. So the apostle John, one of Jesus' disciples, one of the people that Jesus took with him further into the garden that fell asleep, 
he wrote one of the Gospels, basically a biography of Jesus. And when he refers to himself in the book of John, he refers to himself as the beloved disciple or the one whom Jesus loved. That becomes John's identity henceforth. And again, later on in the New Testament, Paul, when he starts his greeting in all of his letters, in Romans, in Corinthians, in Galatians, the standard greeting he gives, if you read verse 1 of all of those books, it's some version of Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And really that word servant is interchangeable with the word slave. But when you look at Paul's credential, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Timothy, Colossians, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. A part of what makes this so interesting is that Paul had so many other ways in his life, so many other credentials in his life that he could have identified as a Pharisee, educated by Gamaliel, a tent maker, a Roman citizen, one who had connections to the high priest and to the Sanhedrin, one who personally met Jesus. Yet, after his process, after his conversion, after his meeting encounter with Jesus, his whole identity, especially when he writes all these letters, is not in what he has accomplished and what he's done. It's, I'm Paul, and my identity is, I'm simply a servant of Christ. And this idea makes sanctification, I think, really, really scandalous in today's day and age. Where last week we talked about the fact that to become changed like God, to become more like Jesus, to become changed, you have to accept the fact that you are not perfect just the way you are. And that you require change, you require someone else to help you in your life, which in today's culture is a very scandalous and offensive thing to say. And the second thing about sanctification is that once you submit yourself to God, you realize that your identity is not personal. It's not something you give yourself. Your identity is found in God. In today's day and culture, identity is very, is very personal. You've, it's up to yourself to find out who you are. You go on a trip. You discover yourself. You take that backpacking trip to Europe and find who you really are. But in sanctification, the process of becoming more like Jesus, we realize that our identity is not found in what we do or what we've accomplished, but in who Jesus says we are. In a lot of ways, sanctification is a matter of our hearts being changed and not our lives necessarily. And here's what I mean by that. A lot of times, our relationship with God, and this came from a conversation I had with one of our college students, we're texting back and forth, is that we want God Really, we cling to God and we ask God for things because we want God to change our lives. We want God to change our circumstances, change our situations. But in a lot of ways, what God does throughout Scripture and what something like the fruit of the Spirit shows is that God is more interested in changing your heart and your character rather than changing your circumstances. God is willing to wait years for people's hearts to change in Scripture before he actually changes their circumstance. Moses is the perfect example of that. Moses was the prince of Egypt, and God has him live as a sheep, as a shepherd in the middle of the Midianite desert for 40 years for him to change before God is willing to change Moses' situation and bring him back into Egypt. I imagine there are times when Moses is out there and like, I hate this. I don't know what I'm doing out here. This, I used to run Egypt or whatever the case may be, but God waited for, God was willing to wait for Moses to change before he was willing to use Moses for his purpose. Jacob with Laban, Noah and the ark, the Israelites in the wilderness is another perfect example where God was saying, I'm going to wait for you to change your hearts before we change your lives, so to speak. In all these circumstances, it becomes clear that God's priority is to change human hearts rather than to change the situation that we are in. 
I had this conversation with someone not too long ago, and I think a lot of one prayer that we pray, and this is we, a series we preached a while ago is, I think a lot of us, we stress out about something like money. And I think a lot of times, maybe you've prayed this prayer before, God, I want to be free from like the shackles of money or like worrying about money or having money be my God or having money be my idol. Free me from the power and the grips of money. But if we're being honest, if God came to you and said, all right, your prayers have been answered, I'd like, to, I'd like to make sure you never have to worry about money again. And he's like, you got two choices. If you, take, if you choose door number one, you won't have to worry about money. I'm going to give you just a winning lottery ticket. You'll have all the money in the world. And on the other hand, you'll have the same amount of money you have now, but you'll just be perfectly content and happy and grateful and thankful for what you have. I think for most of us, when we pray and ask God for financial freedom, what we're praying for is lottery ticket numbers, God. That's what I would like. I would like enough money so that I don't have to worry about money anymore. But really what God is really trying to do and in the process of is changing your hearts and our perspectives on life. And another way of looking at it, sanctification is not the process of removing the storms in our lives. It's the process of developing the peace to be able to go through those storms. I think a lot of times, even though we claim to know it, what we ask God to do is to make our lives easier. God, take this stress away from me. Make this go. Help me, protect me from these things. But when we look at Scripture, God's more interested in helping you get through those moments in life, changing your hearts and transforming you from the inside out to develop that trust in him. There's two instances, literally, where Jesus and his disciples encounter an actual storm together. In one, not an actual storm, but the actual chaos together on waters. In one, they're in the boat, and they see Jesus walking towards them on the water. And they freak out because they don't recognize him, and he thinks he's a ghost. What's going on? In another instance, Jesus is with them in the boat, and there's an actual storm going around. And they see Jesus, and Jesus is calm, and that freaks them out more, and it makes them upset, and they wake Jesus up. In both of these instances, the tension is resolved, the story is resolved, when they understand who Jesus is. When Jesus is walking on the water, they're fearful, they're scared. What's going on? And then Jesus calls out to them, have no fear, it is I. And then it's, oh, we're good. That's Jesus. We know who that is. If anything, let me walk towards you. And when Jesus is on the boat with them and he's sleeping, they freak out, they wake Jesus up, and Jesus asks them, oh, how could you have so little faith? And he calms the winds and the storms. And the first question they ask themselves after the storm has subsided is, who is this man? that the winds and the waves obey him. When you read scripture, you can make the case that Paul sees suffering and affliction as a good tool. Not only so, this is what he writes, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And this is only done when we embark on the journey to submit our lives to Jesus or to lose who we are to Jesus' will. Because in so many aspects, and we talked about this in Sabbath school, I think it's intrinsic in human nature that we hate to lose, but the reality is, if we are winning in the struggle with God, and if we are winning, if our plans are coming out on top, in most cases it means that God is losing and that God's will is not being accomplished because we push ourselves. I want to stop and address something um, as we go through this, and I imagine there's some people here in this room that maybe up until this point in this series, you've been like, yeah, this, is, this makes a lot of sense. I know this. We need to change. Yeah, I've heard this before, but I know that. And actually, right now, what I'm going through is I would love to change. I realize I need to change, 
but I'm not changing. In fact, I've been having the same struggles for so long, and even right now, I'm currently going through this struggle where, where I, I know I shouldn't be doing something, but I keep doing it. I'm trying to break this bad habit, and it's becoming really, really discouraging for me because you're right. I understand that I need to become more like Jesus, but I'm frustrated because I've been trying and nothing has been happening. I have the same fallbacks. I keep trying to repent and confess and come back, and I've been stuck in this cycle for so, so, so long, I'm starting to lose hope. And for someone here that feels like, man, I've really been trying for so long, and I continue, my, my baseline is that I just struggle but I haven't really found this overcoming victory and I keep coming back with these same issues and with the same things that bother me and make me fall. I want to remind us that your struggle against sin, you struggling and fighting against sin is evidence of the Holy Spirit working in your life. I heard this quote earlier that shadows are evidence of light, that the only reason you're able to perceive shadows is because there is a source of light. And I think a lot of times we become discouraged when we're fighting and struggling with sin. We feel like it's because we are so sinful. I would argue that the fact that you have not given in, that you continue to struggle and get back up and repent and continue to hold on to God is evidence that God is not done with you yet. And that a lot of times, and like anything that's important, change takes time over the course of many, many, many years. Paul talks about this, this thorn in his side that he had. And there's a few different interpretations of what that thorn may be. Something it's a, it's a physical, literal pain in his side. Other things it's a habit or some hang-up that he had or, or some bad like, speech impediment. Whatever it was, there was something in Paul's life that God never took away from him. And Paul had to have peace with that. And I think there's something to be said about those of us that struggle and we feel like we, don't have, we haven't made any progress. And we've gotten to the point that maybe we feel like I don't know. I've been struggling with this for so long. I wonder if, if it's either I'm doing things wrong or maybe you've gotten to the point where you say, I don't, think, I don't think God cares. I don't think God has the power to change me. And if you're in that situation, I want to remind you and encourage you, whatever it is you're going through, whatever this long-term thing that's been bothering you, that you've been struggling with, that you may not have seen immediate victory over at this point, that your struggle with this thing is evidence and proof that God has not given up on you, that God continues to stay by your side, and that God has not left you alone. This is the line that Paul says in 2 Timothy. At the end of his life, he says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Paul uses the analogy of a fight and a race to describe the life that he's lived up until this point. And I think there's something to be said about him using athletic, long-term competitions where really there is a bit of a struggle and it's a struggle that requires endurance and perseverance. And I don't know who needs to hear this today, but don't give up. The struggle is proof that God has not given up on you. And your, pers your perseverance and your endurance will be rewarded. There is hope and there is more to life than what that thing is that you're going through. That being said, I think the question that comes to mind is wherever you are in the spectrum where like you feel like, okay, I feel like I need to change now, or I've been struggling with change, how do we become more like Jesus? But how do I develop a life? Like, how do I actually submit to God's will? It sounds good and dandy, and yeah, Jesus did an amazing thing in the garden. Props to him. I'm so grateful because I benefited a lot from that. But what does it actually look like? What does it really mean to submit to God's will? How do I actually practically apply that in my own life? Anything that happens in daily practice and it happens over a long period of time. But in order for it to happen, 
it must be on our minds that our goal must be to grow and to become more like Jesus, that disciplines that feel growth must take place every day. And I think there are two and a half main things that we can do, none of them that will blow your mind, but that will draw us closer to become more like Jesus. And the first is how we approach our prayer life. And we should pray that we can accomplish God's will in our lives. The Lord's Prayer begins with this phrase, Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And there is something very important about the way Jesus begins this, this, this gold standard of prayer. where He begins by saying, this prayer, this conversation I have with God, my relationship with God is based on, God, I want what you want. Change my heart, change my desires so that I can submit to your will and your plan in my life. This takes after Jesus' own prayer in the garden where he acknowledges, God, this whole cup that's coming down my way of, of the cross and being alone in this tribulation is not necessarily what I want, but my prayer is help me want what you want and give me the strength to be able to do what you want me to do. Our prayer life must reflect this. And the second is, we must read scripture to know what God's will is. We must pray that we can accomplish God's will. And then we have to read to know what God's will in our life is. There's a phrase in scripture where Jesus says frequently, he says, he who has ears, let him hear. And the idea of this is not, Jesus isn't saying like, hey, as long as you're not deaf, I hope you understand what I'm saying. This idea of he who has ears, let him hear, is this idea of understanding, internalizing, and implying what we read, to receive and to respond. In a lot of ways, the Bible should be, serve as a handbook for our lives to, to teach and to rebuke and to encourage us. And this is how we learn what God's will in our lives is. I've, I've talked to a lot of youth where the conversation is, I want to do God's will, but I don't know how to find out what God's will is. And I think a lot of times when we pray, we hope for like an angel to appear in front of us and tell us, hey, this is what God wants you to do. But the reality is, that a lot of times the only reason we ask those things to God is when we come at a decision in our life where we're lost, right? What college should I go to? What job should I take? And those are times when we may pray that prayer of, God, what, do you, what is your will for my life? But the reality is this has to happen on a much more daily basis where we read scripture because scripture teaches us how God wants us to live our lives. But to truly submit to God's will requires us to read the Bible, to read scripture with a humble attitude. I think a lot of times, we read scripture as a means of confirmation bias. And a lot of times, scripture magically will rarely disagree with us. Or we'll read something in scripture and we're like, ah, it doesn't make sense, so I don't need that. Or that doesn't make sense, I, I don't really agree with that. And so we'll interpret it in a way that fits our, our pre-existing cognitive parameters. But the reality is, that really doesn't help us become more like God at all. A lot of times, and I felt this temptation too, where we read the Bible and I'll read something like, that's not, I don't think that's true, right? And instead of digging deeper and trying to understand what the context is, I'll frame that message in a way that makes me feel like, okay, so I'm good. That didn't actually disagree with me. I'm perfectly fine with that. But the reality is, the whole point of Scripture, if we want Scripture and prayer to truly change us, we must allow it to remind us at times, that we are wrong. That maybe the ideas and preconceived notions we've had on our mind, the Bible is trying to teach us how to get rid of those things. A consistent relationship with Scripture and reading it for the purpose of, of submitting to the Bible allows it to change us, where we realize that this, is, this book is not just a book about self-help, but it's a book that has authority, 
authority to change us, and we must allow it to do that. But a lot of times, I think we primarily go to Scripture as a means of encouragement, of I'm scared, I'm nervous, I'm stressed, I need to feel better about this situation that I'm in, rather than allowing Scripture to enter into our lives and to change us. But at the end of the day, what leads to true transformation, yes, praying is helpful and reading the Scripture is good, but what leads to true transformation is making real-life decisions based on our prayers and what we've experienced in Scripture. If you really want to grow in faith, if you really want, if you really want to change to become more like Jesus, you have to start making decisions in your life that reflect the things that you've prayed and that you've read. And this is where we go back to Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. As important as Jesus' prayer was in the garden, where he prays, not my will but yours be done, as significant as it was, what's more important is what happened after Jesus prayed that prayer. That victory was not won in the garden, victory was won in the cross. That after Jesus prays to God and says, not my will but yours be done, Jesus gets up after his prayer, and then he willingly gets arrested, and like a lamb led to slaughter, he laid down his life, not according to his will, but according to the Father's will. And this is important because it's one thing to know what God's will for our life is. It's one thing to pray and ask God, God, not my will but yours be done. And that's important and that's powerful. But the true transformation comes when you experience that change in your own life. When you take a step of faith and understand that I know what God's will for my life is and it's against what I want to do, and in a manner of faith, I'm going to go with what God wants, even if it's different from what I want in my life. There's a difference between knowing about God and knowing God, between knowing about God's love for humanity and experiencing God's love for you. That true submission that leads to growth means giving God considerable access and influence over our lives. That it's submission followed by obedience. And that takes faith. Pastor Chris talked about it at the end of, of our praise set, that a lot of times we do kind of know what God may want for us to do in our lives. And sure, there are moments when you have these big crossroads in your life where you're like, God, should I take this or this? Should I take, take this job or go to this school or do that this major? I've had that experience, and I know that that's stressful. But by and large, on a day-to-day -day basis, I feel like we do know what God's will for our life is. And Pastor Chris has asked this question before, and it's been such a timeless question that I've, I've had in my own walk with Jesus. When you come to a crossroads and you ask yourself the, the question, what would a great Christian do? What would a mature Christian in the faith do? Nine times out of 10, we can answer that question. And a lot of times, most of us, what it's come down to is we know in our minds what God's will for us actually is. We just don't do it. Because to do God's will in a lot of ways goes against our will. And in a lot of ways, following God's will means that you take the price of being uncomfortable or being vulnerable or doing something that was not according to your own plans. But at the end of the day, that's how you grow. The only way you can grow in your trust in God is to do something that you feel like is contrary to yourself, but that God wants you to do. And once you do that, then you experience God's love and you experience that, ah, God's plan for me are indeed good. It's one thing to hear every week you hear in scripture that, that God loves you, God loves you, God cares about you. And you know, Pastor Chris and myself and all of our speakers and all the songs that we sing say those things. But it's a completely different experience to experience God's love for yourself. It's one thing to read that God so loved the world. And it's another thing entirely to experience that love on a personal level. 
I was listening to a message by Tim Keller, and one of the things he talked about is you can never learn that God loves you through teachings and through scripture. The way you truly learn that God loves you is that you put yourselves in situations where you feel like God must have abandoned you. You put yourselves in situations where God must not be next to you, and you realize, looking back, that God has never left your side. That's how you grow in your understanding of God, and that's how we grow in our trust of God. We can never really grow to trust God more if we never actually make real-life decisions based on what God's will for us truly is. At the junior high retreat a couple of months ago, um, Ken was sharing on this idea of prayer with the junior high school students, and he talked about how he was, was doing something, and he felt like God was telling him to talk to this person, this random person in the middle of nowhere. And it's like, ah, I don't know. And he really felt like God was leading him, like, go have that conversation with that person. And he didn't. And that stayed with him for a really long time. And I've talked with Pastor Chris about the same thing, where he said he had a season of his life where he was like, I'm just going to do whatever I feel like God is telling me to do. And it led him to do some crazy things. We're sitting in the coffee shop, and he felt like God wants me to talk to this person. And he did. And those moments of acting on what we know God's will for our life is are the building blocks that will build our faith and trust in God. But the reality is that for so many of us, it's the discomfort that is associated with that is greater than the trust that we can gain. And for a lot of us, God just stays here in our minds. And we know about God, and we know that God loves us. And we know that God's plans are good because that's what the songs say and that's what the Bible says. But we have yet to experience God's good plans in our own lives because that can only be experienced when we actually make decisions in our lives that are according to God's and not our own. That growth in faith must be experienced. And you can only learn so much by reading the stories of Moses and Joseph and Jacob because that's not you. And when we're stuck in just learning and knowing about God as opposed to experiencing him, there's a world of a difference between a theologian that just knows scripture and a Christian that knows that God loves him and her and has a personal relationship with Jesus. At the end of the day, the idea of sanctification, of trust, of growing in God must go from prayer, must leave prayer, must leave scripture, must leave the garden and come into our own lives. That the victory was won on the cross and the decision that Jesus made was in the garden, yes. But the true victory that Jesus won for us happened in what he did after he acknowledged what God's will for his life was. I've shared this many times. I don't want to go into it too much, but a lot of my personal calling, this sounds really bad, but it's really true. I wrote this on my application to Andrews. And if you don't know, as I was applying for colleges, when you go to an Adventist school, um, like you can do the whole application in about 15 minutes in one sitting. But the one thing they ask of you is they ask, hey, like, you know, why do you want to come here? Like, what is your little personal story? And I distinctly remember that in that short little blurb that I wrote, I quoted Jesus' prayer that the story of my life is not my will, but yours be done. And I remember writing this. Maybe I shouldn't have. I don't think it really would have mattered. But I wrote, um, I don't want to be a pastor, but I'm going to study theology because I feel like that's what God wants me to do. And in that moment, and like I, would, I, was like, I would tell people that, and then my people would be like, maybe you shouldn't tell people that. You don't tell people you didn't want to be a pastor. But in the truest sense, that was true. I had no plans and no desire to be a pastor. But for whatever reason, Strictly by the grace of God, I did it. And I followed through, and, and I studied theology, all the ups and downs. And you may not know this, 
But the summer before I came here, which is in the summer of 2018, when Pastor Chris, someone I'd never talked to, by the way, like texted me out of the blue. I was in the library and he said, hey, this is Pastor Chris Sean from Rob. We'd love you to come out and do this internship. You may not know this, but in that library, the prayer that I prayed to God was, okay, God, I'm going to go, but this, if I'm on a freeway, this internship is my last exit. Meaning, I have never done ministry before, and really, I came all the way here, I don't really know why, because like, I think this is your plan for me, but I've never done ministry, I've never really preached, I'm just here because I'm pretty sure I was supposed to follow you, but now that I'm here, and now I actually have to do stuff about it, it's a little scary. And so I told myself in the prayer, and I still wrote about this in a journal somewhere, is I'm gonna go to Rock. I don't know anybody here, and if I go, and it's like the worst experience ever, that will be my sign that, oh, I was delusional. And that this was not your plan for me at all. And like, I would love to say that I came here that summer like convicted, like, yeah, I'm on fire for Jesus. Let's go change the lives of the future of our church. But the reality is, was for me in a very real sense, I didn't know. But in that small amount of faith that I had, which really was a small amount of faith to move forward and do this, and again, all of this was orchestrated with God in the background, I came here and it changed my life. And, and this is uh, this first Sabbath, and I don't know if you guys know this, this is five years ago was the first Sabbath I came here, the first Sabbath of February in 2019. It's crazy. It's been five years. That's wild. It's actually insane. But that one decision changed my life. Really, and I, I was talking about this with someone earlier this past week, and it truly was the greatest decision I've ever made in my life, not because... And, and it's more important because I cannot take credit for any single thing or part of my ministry. Everything from the calling itself to the, the internship that was set up and all these opportunities that got me to where I am today was so outside of myself. Even with my, if I tried my hardest, I could not have orchestrated my life to get to where it is today. And the only reason I've experienced any level of blessing in my life in ministry was because I did something that I did not want to do, but really felt that God wanted for me in my plans. And the reality is for this, for any of us that feel like I've been the same person my whole life, I have not grown at all in my relationship, the only way you can grow is if we allow ourselves to be influenced truly by someone outside of ourselves. And that requires vulnerability, submission, and trust. And a lot of times we feel like, God, you're asking too much. Pastor Chris practically preached this sermon just before praise in that God makes the first step in this entire relationship where he says, don't just take my word for it. I put my money where my mouth is. I paid the price for you. And because I've already done that, here's what I'm asking. Because you know that my intentions and plans for you are good, because I've already saved you, here's why you can trust in me. And yes, it still does require a measure of faith and it's scary and it's vulnerable. But anyone... That's in this whole series been questioning growth. The reality is it requires for us to get out of that boat, to walk on that water, to take that step of faith, to submit to God requires a level of action that is scary and vulnerable and to step into the unknown. But I can guarantee you from my personal experience that you will not regret following Jesus into the unknown because it will change your life in a way you can never, ever could have imagined. And the third application, and probably the most uncomfortable at all, um, and how we can truly grow, and if you feel like I need to grow, and, and this, this is all personal, everything we've talked about today is between you and God, but the one that will really force you to get out of your comfort zone, 
Um, the one that's most uncomfortable, yet arguably the most practical, um, is one that Pastor Chris will share on next week. And this is the one that applies most to the fact that we are in a church. Everything we've talked about so far is between you and God. But we'll talk about next week. The practicalness of our message next week will apply in a way um, that we can apply to our church community. And not will only make you grow, but will help us as a church grow together in God. So I hope you join us next week for part three of Growing Up. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I want to thank you for the grace and mercy you've given us before we've done anything, God. The story of Scripture, the story of your life and our relationship with you is that before we had done anything, before we had spoken a word, you gave it all for us, Father. And we thank you for the grace and love that you've poured out upon us, Father. Grace and mercy that we'll never really understand. Lord, as we speak and, and, and we leave this place and we delve into this idea of growing more in you, God. I ask that you give us the strength and the faith and the encouragement and the patience that it requires for us to step out, to step out in faith and allow you to make meaningful change in our lives, Father. As scary as, as it may be, Lord, as uncomfortable as it may be, Father, help us to make the necessary moves in our lives and trust and faith in you so that we can submit to your will and allow your plans to overcome ourselves, Lord, that we can lose so that you can win. Father, this is our prayer for this week, that we can slowly start giving chunks of our lives to you, that you can take control of our lives. I pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.